What's up, nerds? How are y'all doing? Sometimes I wish I could do more live podcasts with the audience actually listening to me right in front of me. With normal podcasts, feedback from listeners can come days, weeks, or even months after an episode is published. But in any case, I love your feedback. So if you like the show or if you don't, let me know. Leave a rating and review in Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or just tag me in your next social media post. I always appreciate it. So nerds, do you like science? Well, how about some decentralized science? In this episode, we dive deep into the DeSci space with Vincent Weiser, Chief Product Officer of Molecule and Passionate DAO Builder. We specifically talk about the concepts of IP NFTs, intellectual property ownership in science, design principles, and managing DAO communities. For this episode, I'd like to specifically thank a Health Unchained community member, Heinrich Tessendorf, for connecting me with his colleague, Vincent. It's all about that community. We all know it, and when you feel it, it feels really good. So it's much appreciated. Heinrich is the Community and Marketing Manager at Molecule. So if you're still with me, thank you for listening. And remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show! Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today, I'm super excited to be speaking to Vincent Weiser, Chief Product Officer at Molecule and all-around DSI leader. Vincent, so excited to be here with you. How are you? Thanks. Yeah, great for having me. Let's start off with giving the audience a brief background about yourself. I know you're a designer. You've been working as a designer for many years, as well as a developer in the in the space. Can you kind of give a background? Yeah, so I was always kind of like, since my teens, passionate to build stuff and really early wanted to, for some reason, build a website in my early teens. And I got into just building simple stuff from different things, from blogs to interning at different startups, and then started really with design, but also moving front end and some product ideas, but then really got excited actually by crypto and healthcare. So I started studying design actually at Code University, kind of a very startup-centric university. Where is and that? It's in Berlin. It was actually founded by a serial founder that wasn't happy about kind of like the educational offering for people that want to go into startups. So he created this university, which was fairly interdisciplinary with design, product, and software engineering as courses. But you actually had to start in the first semester taking all three. So basically, the goal wasn't that people only design their only software but that they touch all of these disciplines so that was really exciting for me so i kind of actually switched a bit to also software engineering to the basics and machine learning but also took product courses they also had sts which was science and technology studies and also on the ethics of technology i, I did like for example a workshop on brain computer interface and the ethics involved with that but then really during that time actually uh, started a crypto exchange in 2017 called DexBlue on Ethereum and got really deep into the crypto rabbit hole, but also got really excited by actually healthcare and tried to self-teach myself some of the basics of molecular biology and longevity research going to conferences. And actually then met kind of like a, one of my next co-founders, Celine her lawyer, that I then explored actually health insurance startup with in 2018 very briefly so touching also onto healthcare and then when i figured out okay u.s health insurance wasn't the problem i want to take it for the rest of my life i went back and considered kind of what's interesting or potentially also at the intersection but also i continued to just go deeper on both fields and then got really lucky to meet paul and tyler that were building a molecule so kind of like yeah this marketplace to fund research through crypto. So it was perfect to find the intersection of those two fields I was really excited about. 
And so that's kind of like how it started. Sure. No, that's a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks for the context. I think it's it's great to know how these leaders like yourself sort of come into where they are now, because most people don't grow up thinking they're going to decentralize science. It's not a thing that we really have thought about in the past, but I think now everyone is thinking about that. All the scientists, a lot of academic professors, people are starting to consider the alternatives because the publish or perish mentality is fading. I think there's a lot of people that are just kind of tired of that system. There's just so much waste in the system that there has to be a better way. Because if you think about all the data that is generated, all the failures in science that is not reported, that's kind of important stuff. And we're just letting it go. With a more transparent model, we can enable true science in a decentralized, open way. So I love it. I think I'm starting to have this feeling that DSI is going to be leading the decentralized health movement because healthcare itself is really complex. Like you mentioned, you started thinking about doing research on the insurance industry in America. <laughs> Good luck. I know it wasn't a, an easy thing to study, but then you also have to think about the, the future technologies that are coming out. Like you mentioned AI, brain computer interface. Elon Musk has Neuralink. There's other companies that are doing things like this. It is happening. It's going to happen. We need to think about the ethics now. So I'm glad you've taken those courses you mentioned in Berlin. I think that's really great. So I'm just really excited to, to hear you. I checked out your website as well, which has a lot of information about the ethics of biotech and science and just longevity, which is a really interesting space as well. And I want to ask this question because I think it's important for people to understand because some of my listeners maybe are just starting to hear about blockchain for the first time. So how did you hear about blockchain technology? Yeah, so what's interesting, I actually thinking back to it, actually I had two people I met early in school, I think it was like 2012 or something, that on the one side was deep in liberal politics and economics, and the other was deep in a nerd, deep in the internet, building stuff. And both were telling me about Bitcoin. So I was like, okay, this seems interesting, like some of the smartest people in also two separate areas were talking about it, but then only got really into it, reading the Ethereum white paper in 2016, I think, and getting excited by it. And then really excited by the idea of the DAO. I actually put all my ETH in it and was like, thought this was the future of capital formation and venture. And in, in general, really, yeah, then got excited by all the use cases and then going to conferences, to meetups. And talking to people made me even more excited, but also just about the potential to build stuff in a much more like quick way that also affect people. I think it's for me it was kind of like the internet on steroids with like the original vision of like being decentralized and also having autonomous applications that are not controlled by one entity or could be taken down. And of course, just really also enabling novel use cases because everything from like DeFi to some of the primitives we want to build and are building with. These are, are fundamentally not really possible with uh, Web2 stack. So that was really exciting to me. Yeah, that's, that's really amazing. So let's talk about Molecule and DAOs and their structure, but really in the context of what the problems they're trying to solve. So what are the problems in our existing models of science or research funding, patents, the data ownership, and even royalty distribution? So once a scientific discovery has been made and written and patented how are royalties distributed now and then what are the problems with all of that yeah so i think if you break it down in those different things i think on something like research funding of course there is a lot of research funding for example coming from institutes like the nih in the us but oftentimes what i've heard is that on the one side researchers are spending a majority of their time like pis sometimes 70 percent to write grants and scramble for research dollars and for funding and then it's also of course fairly slow and bureaucratic and and sometimes conservative and in general i think not a good thing to rely on like those monolithic gigantic funding bodies i think they're not bad like i, I want them to potentially even increase their funding but i think there needs to be a diversity of funding sources. And it doesn't seem to be the case right now that there is a huge variety of those funding sources. So that's on research funding. Like my friend Alexi with New Science created a new uh, science institute and he did a deep write-up that you can read on newscience.org slash NIH that I can really recommend. And like a lot of the issues the NIH has, I think, as the biggest biomedical research funding body in the world. So I think yeah, the, the main point there is just to have 
more quicker and less bureaucratic funding, which we, for example, enabled with Molecule and VitaDAO, where some of the research went from application to getting funded within three to four weeks, which like was astonishing to the researchers involved, like how quickly it happened. And then on the patents, ownership and royal distribution side, I think there are multiple issues. Like one, I think, is that a lot of IP is dormant or shelved in biotechs and, and it's so hard to access. And ultimately, I think it's even similar in a sense, like if you take cryptonology, it's like something like OpenSea enables people to see all the art and make a bit on all the art. And like in that sense, it's harder to discover and explore kind of the patents out there. And But I think even more than that, also there are like fundamental misalignments in the sense that the researcher oftentimes lacks ownership and sometimes there's no real incentive for anyone in the system to translate and advance the research. And then ultimately also, like we've been dealing with them, tech transfer offices and universities are fairly hard to deal with and uh, also don't necessarily have the goal to spin out a successful startups and sometimes also don't understand really, for example, that they would kill a biotech if they take 30% ownership by having their research spin into it. So I think also some of those things, to be fair, like from what I've, I'm reading, are also improving, like in the sense that there is more research funding sources coming. Also, a lot of actually crypto philanthropists changing the game there recently in the tw last 12 months even. And then I think on patent and ownership, what we want to enable, of course, is a much more transparent way and much more digital, also native way for people to discover research, fund research, yeah, and ultimately also retain ownership as a researcher and enable more intelligent royalty distribution. Like one of the examples, even before I came into this space for me, for NFTs was actually kind of like a, even if you take music, that you could program a song for the royalty streams and same for, of course, a patent that it basically streams payments like in a moment it's used or in the moment there is revenue to the different owners. So I think it even natively allows for better ways to distribute royalties. But I think a lot of this is also remains to be built also on our side. So it's just starting really. And then, of course, one big issue, I think, is also in general, just a declining return on R&D investments. So there's this famous phrase called uh, Eram's Law, which basically states that instead of Moore's Law, which makes progress go up, and like the doubling of compute, it's basically the reverse of like declining research and development productivity. And I think there's multiple issues. And like, I don't think crypto will solve all of them, <laughs> uh, like far from it. But I think one thing actually is that what was fascinating to me, because the guy who wrote the paper is also advising us, that it's ultimately the big farmers are potentially overstating their expenses and also more inefficient. So small biotechs potentially have a better return on investment on their research. And our goal, of course, is to make it in that sense, even like before biotech, to really enable the academics and the researcher to focus on also translational research and have incentives to do so. Yeah, so that's like the goal to... Sure. And I think like the industry is taking note. And I think recently Molecule has raised $12.7 million in seed funding from many investors. So I think that as proof, and there are, I believe, some pharmaceutical companies as well, part of that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they're part of that investment as well. So our we were really happy about this round. Our lead investor is actually like a traditional biotech investor, Northbound Ventures, that is one of the biggest biotech investors in the world. And they were really excited also by this model to like enable more ultimately uh, research that could potentially create translational like research on biomedical therapeutics. But I think some of the pharmaceutical companies, like to my surprise, and their venture arms were really interested in what we do much earlier than I expected. Uh, also on VitaDAO's side, I think also to really tap into that big community that can basically source interesting research and also enable them more deal flow ultimately to fund interesting research and biotechs. Right. And not only do you have big investors, but what's cool about DAOs and blockchain is that anyone can really get involved. That's the value proposition in many ways, that it's open to everyone, even a patient. If there's a research grant that is requested by a researcher and um, a principal investigator, for a disease that a patient has and the patient wants to fund it and they have the money to do it, they can do it. And not only will they 
potentially accelerate the research, but they could potentially benefit from the treatment if it happens to commercialize. So I think it's just really cool. You're creating this circular economy for the whole, I don't want to say healthcare yet, but it is the scientific community. I think the issue with healthcare, I do think that eventually all of this will also play a part in the healthcare system. But what I've seen over the last few years talking to many people is that healthcare's overregulated more than research is. Research, if you think about it, it's the beginning of the idea and you're just starting to experiment in a lab. No human trials are happening. No patient data or HIPAA regulation needs to be followed. So there is more leeway. And also another thing that adds to the weight of DSI is that these are scientists, researchers. They're already using the top technology. They're already trying to innovate as much as possible. So it's a perfect place. As opposed to in healthcare, these individuals, doctors, are usually more conservative, traditional. They want to make sure what they're doing is safe, et cetera. So those are some of the differences I've seen. Yeah. And what was really exciting to me is like I kind of like started also on this basically helping to build a Vita DAO, kind of like this longevity research DAO we helped create, but also, of course, alongside a bunch of other people, also like professors, MDs, like just enthusiasts. And what was really exciting to see is to the point you mentioned, like the one thing which is fascinating, of course, that like everyone kind of in the DAO is a patient because like age-related disease affects all of us. And ultimately, it has so many parts, like the funding of research is just one component that I think people care about. But it's also really about, we had stuff like journal clubs to understand research for a lot of the people and to share research, as well as like even smaller efforts, like a fellowship to support students in the field and other people entering the field and just a bunch of experience and fun, basically also ways to learn more about the science. Like ultimately, it's like, all of those members, ultimately, many contributed capital, but I think a lot of them are also just interested to see the research getting evaluated in the open. Like, ultimately, our funding proposals are in an open forum, and researchers discuss basically how that research should be potentially done in a different way, or what are the strengths and weaknesses. And I think that's extremely exciting to see everything of that. This also learning and sharing of knowledge, like happening in the open and for people to to follow basically also the reasoning and the arguments for or against funding specific research projects and just exploring a bunch of different initiatives to also advance the research other than just purely funding the research, also like supporting individuals. But now, for example, we're also starting, which we'll announce, I think, next week, like a longevity prize, which we gather donations for. With Gitcoin, we did like a quadratic donation round for research, which Vitalik actually funded with almost half a million and a bit of also coming from our DAO. So just like trying out all of these different experiments that are natively enabled really by a blockchain to fund research, to fund individuals, to explore new scientific prizes and not just fund research monolithically, but really also create a community around that. Yeah, and I think it's so great because we talked about the NIH a little bit earlier. I think there's an opportunity for the NIH to be part of this, not against it or not on the other extreme, but really this is partnership potential that is just screaming, it's join forces, get this done, because it's really going to benefit everyone. Uh, and this actually, we had an interview with the NIH, I think one of the leading uh, researchers or even the head of it, uh, I'm not sure, I think the director, uh, Luigi Ferrucci, who I think was like half a year ago, like also jumping on a conversation. It's also incredible to see it's like that some of those people are also really excited and following what we do and are open to engage. So like, I totally believe so that ultimately everyone has a similar goal to advance research and to fund research. And I think a lot of people are open to explore other ways to do so and engage with them. Yeah, and just for some context for the audience who may not be familiar with the National Institutes of Health, they funded, I think, like $40 billion of projects and research in 2020, in, in one year. So that budget, I think, continues to increase. So very much a big player in research overall. So I think it's really important to mention. But now I kind of want to talk to you or have you explain step-by-step step, like the process if I was a researcher and... I'm failing getting funding. I'm trying to get some grants and I keep getting rejected. What would I do? I, what do I go to molecule.com and then what? Yeah. So basically 
you can imagine it like any other marketplace. Like as a researcher, you can on, on Molecule create basically your research project page. So you upload, for example, stuff like the budget, but also stuff like what do you want to do and what's your research design. The and scope and like the requirements, etc. Exactly. And ultimately... If it's related to longevity, you will have VitaDAO taking a look and then potentially send comments like, okay, this doesn't make sense. Or have you thought about doing it differently? So it's really the process where, of course, it's not just you get funded and then there's nothing else, but where also researchers from our community, for example, in VitaDAO's case, try to improve the setup of the research experiment. And then in VitaDAO's case, put it up for a vote to the community if they want to fund it. And also before that, like a discussion which could lead to further improvements of how the research is carried out. But then also in general, you can envision like you as a researcher can upload your project on Molecule. You can see it on molecule.to on the marketplace. You can basically create your project page. And then anyone in the world could, of course, send an inquiry to fund the research. And ultimately, our thesis, and right now, one of the main actors on the marketplace, which launched fairly recently, is VitaDAO as a biotech DAO with funding, with a specific therapeutic focus, with a team that has all its eyes on it. But there are much more biotech DAOs emerging. So, for example, we are helping also on PsyDAO, which is funding psychedelic research. There's ValleyDAO, which is doing biomanufacturing research. HairDAO doing hair loss uh, research. There's a bunch of others that are Already, some of them, like Herdau, I think, have half a million already to fund research and already funded the first research. And actually, have like it's probably one of the most advanced biotech DAOs out there. And those projects basically also begin helping to upload uh, projects, but also send researchers to it because they know, okay, like we we want to fund it. And ultimately, the early adopter in that sense right now are biotech DAOs of this research. It, it makes a lot of sense as a longevity researcher to upload your project on Molecule. And you can also apply to VitaDAO directly, but then we'll basically prompt you to upload it on Molecule. But that's right now the experience. So like as a longevity researcher, you'll get more lucky to potentially receive funding right now than if there are no funding sources on the marketplace. Yeah. So let's say I I have a project and it actually was funded by NIH. Can I also apply to get funding from Molecule? Are there any exclusivity yeah. claims or... How does that work? Yeah. Yeah. So ultimately, I think on some of the researchers also had national funding before, but I think it depends, of course, mostly on the university and researcher and kind of then the negotiations with the tech transfer office on the specific agreements. But ultimately, most of the researchers carried out as a sponsored research agreement, which gives you the right to out license the research at favorable terms, I think. And ultimately, there's, of course, a huge variety of this tech transfer negotiations and different basically deal structures, if you like. Sure. And like you mentioned, some universities, right, typically just for the audience's sake, typically a professor, researcher does research at a university and they pretty much own much of the patents. And because all the work was done using their facility, using their equipment, using their money, well, not really using their money because it's using potentially other sources of funding like NIH. But anyways, the university wants a piece of that. That's kind of what I'm saying. So what you're saying is there are negotiations now between maybe VitaDAO and the university and the researcher and potentially even industry players. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. And basically also Molecule is actively helping in these negotiations. So on our team, there are also people that basically help with these contracts. And the goal really, of course, is to have some network and effects and scale advantages. You can imagine if Molecule as a marketplace has dealt with specific tech transfer of this could be Harvard, for example, before it's much easier the second or third time around. And maybe VitaDAO deals with it the first time, you deal with it the second time, someone else on the third time. But like, it will only get easier in the sense of having specific agreements. And really the goal is also to help standardize some of the agreements a bit. So you, for example, have Y Combinator, which standardized the safe agreement for startup investing. And our goal is really to have these templates for agreements, which are a bit more standardized and also for people to, like even outside of our marketplace, but also in our marketplace, to have an easier time to yeah, basically have these templated research agreements. Understood. Got you. So what do you think are the biggest challenges for DSI space? Good question. I think it's like with a, man, a lot of space, it's mainly talent, actually. I think what I noticed is there's a lot of people building, some of them also scientists that kind of like now want to build in decentralized science. But 
they lack some of the best practices in like building products. So I think there's just this playbook that also Y Combinator and a bunch of players in the Valley basically have popularized, like build something people want, like stuff like Lean Startup and iterating quickly, talking to users and ultimately also having like a strong design product and engineering team. And I think like talent in that sense is always the limiting factor. And the other is, of course, to degree funding. As you can see in our case, it is possible to raise funding and we actually want to also fund other efforts in the space. But for a lot of people, they're like not used to fundraise and don't know how to fundraise. So I think it's actually in that sense, typical to a lot of startup sectors that you need talent and you need to be able to fundraise, but then really also to build stuff people want and do so in the most effective way. I think a lot of people are trying to solve problems that don't really exist and they, they don't really talk to users and build something that doesn't really solve the problem or the problem doesn't even really exist. So in a case like, for example, publishing, there could be like already 20 different decentralized science projects out there. But I think some might be missing the bigger picture on what does the researcher really want and need. And ultimately, they still want to be published in nature and with maybe open access and everything else. But like, what else do they really want and need that uh, decentralized publishing could offer them? Like, it's unclear to me. I would talk much more to also interesting researchers publishing. But I think something like SIAP, for example, of course, solves decentralized publishing in a very pirate way. And I think it's, it's used by many scientists as huge, like the impact, but it's also not really decentralized and not really legal. So, yeah, and you're referring to just for the audience, you're referring to the website where basically all journal publications are freely available. Exactly. Yeah. And I heard from some professors at Ivy League universities that have access to these papers that it's easier to find them there. And ultimately, it's, <laughs> That's it's, funny. Course, it's this huge problem, for example, in an area like publishing, where there's just like the system is clearly broken and clearly the public pays for the research. And then the public pays for researchers paying to publish behind paywalls and then has to pay again to access the papers. And I think that that's like one example, which like, where it's hard for normal decentralized publishing to break into it and improve it really. And where it's already to degree solved for by on something like access by, but then I think there's also stuff like decentralized storage. Like ultimately there's huge benefit in having some of this research still accessible in a hundred years, even if it's lost from one centralized server. So I think there, yeah, there are different vectors I think to solve. And I think a lot of people are also still trying to understand like what are the most important use cases to solve for. And like our thesis, it's funding and also researchers are really in need of funding. So that's something where they're desperate for, but also where they are open to explore new ways because they already are applying to every grant possible and trying everything possible to get funding. So yeah, that's like our thesis on the space. <laughs> yeah, and that's a really good thesis because you're sort of aiming for the lowest hanging fruit right now, which is the funding aspect of research. But then I think you can even, Molecule, VitaDAO, these organizations are, DAOs can form a brand new journal, Nature Plus or something, because there are issues with the incentive mechanisms within research, peer review. Yes, yeah. actually, the funny thing is, actually, people in our community discussed this last week and now want to explore it, like set up a team and a budget. And I think it like can definitely make sense. I think it just needs to, with a lot of these things, you get multiple shots, but ultimately it needs to be done with a lot of care and a lot of effort to do it right. It's also, there's the risk, of course, by having people that are kind of like, don't have the necessary funding, don't have the necessary talent, build something in like a half-hearted way and then it doesn't really showcase the potential of it, but like rather on opposite, basically. <laughs> it needs to scale, right? Because right now we have a system, although it's messy and expensive, it works to some degree. Papers get published, research is there. It just takes a long time and it's expensive, probably unnecessarily. But, you know, new generation, new ideas. It's Absolutely. bound to happen eventually. Awesome. So. I read on your website a, a little bit about biohacking, and I'm also interested in the future of biohacking and how that's going to play a role in society, because I think it will, and it's already starting to do so. But what does the future for biohacking in healthcare look like to you? It's a good question. I, I actually also recently just, again, read up on some of the efforts. For example, I think one of the most interesting ones was a Brian Johnson, the Venmo co-founder and now kernel like building a computer interface like he did this project called blueprint where he is doing like 
measuring everything, doing a lot of interventions, taking a lot of supplements, doing a lot of testing and improving rigorously. Like, of course, with the N of one, just doing research on himself, but like rigorously actually testing it and trying to improve it. And then, of course, there are also a lot of other people doing this in a, in a very extensive way, biohacking. And actually, what was fascinating to me was recently listening to Tim Ferriss, who was also, of course, known with like for our body, I think, to do like a lot, lot of biohacking. And he said he went back to just taking magnesium, basically. And I think at some point he took like 200 pills, this, did like 30 different tests a day and stuff. But I think there's a Pareto of the optimality in the sense of like they're probably right now like 10% of the things that lead to 90% of the impact and I think it's interesting to more rigorously approach it of course in a scientific way like ultimately having clear biomarkers that you try to improve not just individually but with a bigger cohort and kind of like a decentralized clinical trial potentially and I think a few things that clearly make a ton of sense but I think it mainly centers around nutrition diet and of course sports and exercise and ultimately a few interventions from vitamin D to magnesium and a bunch of other stuff potentially. But I think it will get more interesting once you have more rigorous ways to actually compare and test these different interventions in a scientifically rigorous way. So I think that's a bit missing right now. We actually want to do something a bit like with VitaDAO, like enabled basically a biohacking prize on scientific measures that, for example, Brian Johnson is doing with his interventions. And basically having people to participate and compete against them on the, um, improving and rejuvenating their body more than he is doing and sharing all of their like regimen and data that was involved in that. So basically, if you want to claim that you are better, you will get a prize, but you will also have to share and open source your biohacking efforts, basically. So that's like one way how you want to just, yeah. That's interesting. It's the stuff that we don't typically measure in the medical setting necessarily, but those things like your individual behavior, diet, working out, things like that actually do impact your health and longevity. That's super important. Although we'd love to take a pill to just kind of fix ourselves. It's not that simple, but that also leaves the question of how much data are we willing to share as individuals and how are we ensuring that data is, I guess, private or is it secure or will we live in a future where everyone is sharing everything about each other? Like, here's all my transactions for the day. Here's all my health vitals score and stats. It could be. I don't know. Uh, I feel like we're trying to maintain our privacy, at least definitely in the United States. But what do you think? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. It's actually also stuff like incentives and like to a degree gamifying. And there's, of course apps like Strava where you kind of like compete against your friends on whatever like a run or other sport activities and I think those things can also create a huge impact and ultimately what I do myself and what I think is powerful is what I learned from this book called Atomic Habits is to just like habit stack to degree so what I'm doing is just starting every day like since 10 years I think with a few exceptions with a brief workout sometimes it's five minutes sometimes it's 20 and then one can add stuff to it like ultimately adding a healthy diet to it but I think that's how more people should approach it is like starting small like improving from there but i think the future will have people doing more crazy interventions and i think it will be interesting to like scientifically share some of the outcomes of that like ultimately it would be said like everyone is doing it isolated and not sharing what they learned and how it changed their health because i think some of the people are also overdoing it where it might actually be not worth kind of like the effort and whatever resources they put into it just the stress of collecting all that data and organizing it could be impacting your health right that's fair so i have a technical audience or some of my audience is technical and they'd be curious about how molecule and maybe some of the other dao scientific decide DAOs, how they operate like what's their tech stack you being the chief product officer have probably a pretty good understanding of the tech stack to some degree and I'm thinking, what's the blockchain protocol used? How are wallets? What's the user interface for the wallet? Are there nodes? Are there miners, stakers? How does it all work? If you can kind of start with whatever you think is best and kind of we can talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe starting from the building block that it's built on top of, it's like mainly on actually Ethereum. So you can envision, you have, of course, right now tokens. I think it's ESC 701 which are like the NFT, basically, token standards. And what we created is like an IP NFT token standard 
that basically can then plug into also all, for example, the NFT financialization. Of course, like, for example, it's listed then also on OpenSea. You can even like borrow against it or fractionalize it. Like all those things are then possible on Ethereum. But ultimately, there's another layer to it. Like I also linked the piece on the technical description of IP NFTs, which of course is one of the core primitives sitting at all of this. But there's also a decentralized storage layer to it, which is both on actually Arweave and IPFS, so Filecoin. And the public data, basically, it's a JSON with the metadata. On the one side, the metadata of the research. So it's like research area, like therapeutic area, basically, researcher name, like description of the project. And all of those things you can then query, which is just like the project page as JSON attached to the IPNFT. But then there's also the legal agreements is also attached to the IPNFT. And then there's a private access layer to it. So, of course, you as an IPNFT owner, for example, can then access the full uh, legal ag agreement that shouldn't be fully in public. But then this enables what we're still working on, because ultimately this is still fairly new, I think probably like half a year or a bit longer, is also like a layer that you can use basically the IPNFT as a key to access if you like a decentralized Dropbox with all the data from the research, ultimately to basically allow for you as the funder of the research to access all the data that came out of the research. Of course, might not want all the terabytes of sequencing data, but you might want the really proprietary, valuable information to have this accessible actually with the IPNFT. And like my view, like I, I thought about this yesterday, and listening to Balaji's uh, basically explanation of decentralized science. So you could envision it like a GitHub uh, repository. And it starts as a private GitHub repository because you as a funder would lose basically all potential for commercialization if it's fully in the open, unfortunately. So basically, the researcher uploads his insights and data to that private GitHub repository to you as a funder to see. And you can, of course, share access. People can sign an NDA, take a look, like you're like, community potentially could have with an NDA access to it. Sorry to interrupt, but are these NDAs and legal agreements, are they specifically like signed off on the blockchain or are these actual legal agreements with lawyers and you use like Adobe DocuSign or? It's kind of both actually. For example, one system called OpenLaw, which is trying to like increasingly also turn this legal agreements on chain and in general digital. So we're basically exploring and integrating with them, but it's still like a real world physical legal document that is also that you can like take the court exactly yeah. in the real world but it's a bit like a lot of the other actually interesting like crypto efforts for example city DAO buying physical land and putting it on the blockchain it still needs a real a world legal mm -hmm. exactly but goals of course to move as much of it as possible on chain and in the digital world and yeah to your point like ultimately not having to sign physical documents with ink but making also that part fully digital. But I, a lot of it, to be fair, is also still fairly MVP. Like ultimately, we created this for the first IPNFTs that got funded like less than a year ago and are still iterating on this. And also the stack is still massively getting worked on it. So like Protocol Labs, for example, is also an investor that built IPFS. And they are sending us to all the other teams they funded that basically build some of like the decentralized storage layer for example, there's projects like Lit Protocol that we're exploring integrations with, basically decrypt and encrypt the data on chain and, and use the IPNFT as a key. But I think the real interesting thing which people underestimate is that there's this gigantic ecosystem being built around NFTs. And with an IPNFT, you can fully plug into it. Also in general with DeFi, like you can imagine wrapping an IPNFT and you can create a Uniswap pool. Like there's all those things which are possible suddenly because you have this giant stack of open building blocks in DeFi and in NFTs that you can plug into. Some of them might not make sense, but I think a lot of them will also only evolve and become more interesting to potentially explore integrating with. For example, we are exploring NF IP NFT fractionalization that you split it up in multiple parts and people could own a fraction of the IP NFT. So we're, for example, also making innovations there on the legal front. Our general counsel and legal team is basically also working on legal frameworks, how you could fractionalize IP NFTs in a legally compliant way. There's also a lot of the work and innovation is on the legal side, like making sure it's all compliant. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of that 12.7 million in funding is going to legal administration. Hopefully not all of it, but ultimately a lot of it is also what is interesting to me is from as how I view tech as like kind of like a 
NFT marketplaces are a commodity. Ultimately, Dora, a lot of NFT marketplaces offer all of their solutions for free open source and improve it with 30 people and you can just use it. So how we think about it is really focusing on the most valuable parts of the stack that no one else is building, where we can provide the most value to users and where we can't plug into an existing open source uh, solution. So really also around from stuff like the legal agreements to VIP NFT as a primitive, also actually funding like open sources and making it a public good and funding developers to in an open way develop on top of this or build integrations, for example, with a project like LabDAO that is working on on-chain execution of research as well as like accessing wet lab and bioinformatics through the blockchain and so there's a lot of like interesting work also be done by others that we want to connect to. And I think that's from the technical side, one of our primary like focuses to make it as interoperable, as open and public as possible, but still focus on which part make the most sense to build proprietary solutions to. Yeah, that's really exciting. And I think a company like LabDAO, what's well, really interesting with them is data won't be lost anymore. You know what I mean? I just think that's such an important key point. But again, it is hard translating physical science or wet lab things, mice and research about mice, like these things require human intervention, human translation. So it's a tough problem. I do think that computer vision models, when you start to use cameras and, and true AI and ML for computer vision, and they can decipher what's happening instead of our two eyes and our fingers to write what's going on in the lab notebook, that will be transformational, I think. But I think we're a long way from getting there. I can't imagine a robot doing a Western blot. Well, I guess there are tools now, or there are devices that you can do a digital Western blot. And I guess the results of those Western blots can directly go into a lab DAO protocol. Yeah, what, what I found fascinating to think about is I'm not a traditional scientist that has been done work in the lab. Like many of in our team are, like my friend Niklas, for example, that is working on lab DAO or um, Tyler at Molecule. But when I looked at this from a software lens, I thought about how cool would it be and like also exploring machine learning in the context of life sciences, if you could basically develop a drug end to end without even entering the lab more like in a purely digital way, of course, like from advanced ML to accessing cloud labs. And I think a lot of this vision is increasingly getting built, but also to a degree delayed in a sense. People thought, I think, that cloud labs like take over much more than they did. I think contract research organizations, for example, of course, play a big role in like making outsourcing to a degree the physical laboratory work for early stage biotechs, for example. But I think increasingly, I think engineering backwards from the most futuristic way how we could solve diseases and develop drugs, I think goes in the direction of having it purely digital to a degree, purely abstracted. So in the sense, of course, you can do just like a different scale of laboratory experiments if you have a cloud lab. You could probably even from basic stuff like pipetting, like you could probably pipe it overnight more than you could in your lifetime if you could just access gigantic laboratory facilities. And I think it also makes it more reproducible because then you can do the experiment again with the same inputs and, and see if the outputs match. And I think my sisters are also studying biotechnology and I heard it from a bunch of other friends that there's like so much inaccuracy in laboratory research, like a small mistake in the temperature, a small delay in time. All those things affect the research. In that sense, people might like the culture of a physical laboratory, but I think it's very subpar. It's like not ideal. And a lot of researchers also say that some of the brightest minds of our generation are just like manual workers in the lab, basically pipetting all day and like fixing things that a machine could do way better. And I think the really AI futurist like Remus, like really get this vision but i think a lot of scientists are also weirdly like nostalgic about having this physicality to research which for me is easier to move beyond that's fair but i will say i did spend some time in the lab at MIT doing some research on diet and high fat diet on mice. So I did do some pipetting. I won't say like I'm a senior scientist or anything like that, but from what I've seen is for leading edge, new, very new research and science, you do still need the human intervention sort of fiddling around with different reagents and temperatures and things like that. A computer or robotics is excellent for scaling up. So for example, any genetics company, they're not doing pipetting of those molecules, of those genes themselves. That's like they put it in a machine, PCR, go, go, go. It's very much a reproducible process. So that makes sense. But I agree with you. Futuristically, it's going to be cool to see how robots, computers basically do all the research. And we're giving some input, but it's mostly probably ethical decisions that need to be made. <laughs> what, I, what I think is interesting is with a lot of these things is my feeling is talking also to people in the field, like 
they're the, the people who are massively overestimating progress in the short time, like in the sense of like, oh, ML will solve, will make everyone obsolete in for drug discovery. And then those people are like, oh, it will never work out. And I think it's, of course, always something in between. So I can't envision a future, say, in 500 years where like oh, 500 years on a long time frame is where drug discovery isn't being done fully automatically and automated by computers, by algorithms, etc. But of course, if you look in the near term, there are all of these issues in an overhype of drug discovery and machine learning in the life sciences. And just looking like surface level into it and exploring frameworks like DeepCamp, it was really apparent to me. It's like, of course, like from representations to a bunch of those things, still have fundamental issues that are not resolved. But I think one of the most underrated and important thing to solve is actually this more open science and open source tools, data sets, etc. And I think you've seen it with stuff like AlphaFold or to a degree frameworks like DeepM, how powerful it can be if instead of having people basically rebuild the pipeline in every small venture-backed biotech again and again to basically have this as an infrastructure, as an open science open source infrastructure shared between those players to do the truly proprietary and interesting work on top of that instead of like building everything from scratch time and time again like i've heard it from people working and on this that they've gone from startup to startup and like done the same stuff and five years later the startup failed but every startup basically reinventing the wheel instead of using shared resources basically but i think in general you see this trend which in crypto and blockchain are broadly the internet is that open source is superior to like in-house stuff that gets developed. And ultimately, I think it's similar for machine learning and the life sciences that you want much more funding, much more people being able to develop frameworks like DeepCam and data sets that people could utilize and uh, plug in together. So I think that's something where I'm really excited about. And what we actually like, again, want to enable a bit with this, like for example, we want to do in September like an open science and decentralized science donation round on Gitcoin, actually onboarding some of those efforts like DeepCam, which I think have like zero dollars of budget or a bit from Google sponsoring summer internships or something. But it's kind of criminal how underfunded like open science and open source is. And I think sometimes also philosophically funding is not a solution. Like a lot of people are not doing it to have pay, but ultimately I think it is critical to think about how do we get to a similar level, like the equivalent of React, et cetera, for open tooling and machine learning and life sciences. Interesting. So I actually interviewed the chief product officer of another company called Alkin, which mm -hmm. you might have heard of. They're doing using ML and federated learning to help pharma companies sort of not share data, but share insights about molecules and sort of generate potentially new discoveries through ml that way have you interacted with them are you considering partnership any sort of thing with them or what's your thoughts on what they're doing yeah i haven't heard of them honestly but i would love to look more deeply into that i think that's an interesting one on like federated learning in general where there's like a lot of proprietary data and research that biotechs and pharma companies do so i think they need something like a way to share their data but in a way where they don't have to show all of the data, but still keep it somewhat proprietary, but still benefit from the data of others. But to be honest, like, I'm not a deep expert in it, so I wouldn't sure. say yeah. I, I know what the solutions are. I think I'm excited to explore more deeply. Yeah, no, I just wanted to mention it. They actually did raise, I think, $200 million from Sanofi last year. So they're doing quite well from what I'm seeing. What's the um, name? Alkin, O-W-K-I-N. And... Yeah, I interviewed uh, Matthew, so he was chief product officer. I think he still is. Anyways, moving on. In terms of Molecule and their tech stack, is there a token governance model that you would like to share with the audience as well? Yeah, so I think the one thing is it, it needs to be done always in a careful way and it needs to feed into the ecosystem and, if you like, flywheel. So for VitaDAO, it was very obvious to have a governance token, also importantly, like a worthless governance token that people can use to govern where should the research go, but where they are not entitled to any dividends, any like financial upside. And I think for our ecosystem, one thought we're exploring is to basically enable and fund a lot of efforts in the space. Like for example, we funded LabDAO as the first one with $100,000. We want to fund other projects, could be PsyDAO, ValleyDAO, HairDAO, a bunch of other biotech DAOs, as well as like decentralized science infrastructure builders, if you like, that we just want to make it easier for them to yeah, 
as well as like align them also with each other to have like shared total ownership between those entities. One of our goals is to basically create a DAO that funds these projects, but where also the projects get tokens to govern each other. So kind of a meta-governance experiment for decentralized science and biotech. But it's the early days, but you'll be able to learn more on bio.xyz is the name for it. And we'll share an announcement fairly soon, but people can already apply if they want to create a decentralized science project or get funding for the biotech DAO, as well as share advice with each other. So that's one of the efforts we plan. Oh, very cool. Nice. What is the most important life sciences related AI opportunity that nobody is talking about? We talked about a lot of stuff, but is there anything that nobody is really talking about? It's difficult for me. I think the most important everyone is talking about might still be AlphaFold. So that's the totally opposite question. I think to the earlier point, the most important that not enough people are talking about goes in the direction of open source and open science solutions. In a sense, like not hearing many people talk about how to improve as well as build out more solutions that can integrate them more natively with industry, but also make them work better for industry. So I think Schrodinger and, and Stanford are some of the core supporters. That's something I think is underrated in general, is more open source software for life sciences and drug discovery. You yeah. mentioned DeepCamp. Is that what you said? Yeah, exactly. So it's basically, I think the founder is called Bharath Ramsundar, if I'm not pronouncing it wrong. And he, he actually also did a project called Computable at the intersection of kind of AI and blockchain. And I think like a wunderkind at Stanford and developed this framework at Stanford with this fairly big also computational bio, I think, company called Schrodinger supporting it. That's actually one of the things I explored three years ago and played a bit with. And it's still not extremely powerful, but it's definitely one of the most interesting things out there. And also building out benchmarks, for example, with a project called MoleculeNet. And the goal, I think, in general is, of course, you need gigantic data sets that also are partially existing. But basically having more of these big data sets is one game changer. And then more powerful models like AlphaFold, I think is one example, I think would be the biggest thing moving the needle. But again, I'm at the end, I'm more like an enthusiast and like following it from afar and like playing a bit with it. But my feeling is that there should be much more people like funding it, building in this and just like more of an ecosystem emerging around this. I think one thing is also that a lot of biotechs and pharma companies naturally are fairly siloed and doing their own stuff. I think will probably also come a bit from, if you like, service providers and tool builders like Cloud Labs or like benchling solutions that build services that all biotechs or pharma and drug discovery companies broadly can plug into. But I think I'd be really excited to see much more of those solutions getting built and funded and developed further. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I share your enthusiasm. I think it's really exciting to imagine what can happen if all these things did connect together and it did work as what's possible. Have you got any feedback from beta testers of the platform and what has been their opinions? From what I've touched on earlier, I think the main one is, of course, researchers. I would consider the beta testers are the ones that actually got funded. So the first few researchers that got funded. And I think the few experiences, the main positive one was just the quick timeline from application to getting funded. Definitely not on the very first one, which was Martin Scheibenatz in Copenhagen. Of course, as the first one, it took a bit longer. But for the second or third, it, it was much quicker. And But usually, it's also really a function of how quickly the tech transfer office is. And for the one where it was really quickly, the tech transfer office was also really excited and very cooperative. And then I think broadly we're in general just also increasing our conversations and talking to more and more potential users and i think another thing also that i touched on that i think is really powerful is that the researcher receives input and ideas feedback on how they could design their research from people in the community and i think that's something especially with a bias towards translational research so right now a lot of the academic research that gets funded from the nih is usually not really focused to make it translational and then it might produce interesting insights, but it doesn't translate to therapeutics or ultimately reaching patients. That's something where there was also a lot of insight from those researchers that they didn't expect as much like support in designing their research or something that's more translatable potentially. Interesting. And I know you mentioned community and how important that is for community. It doesn't happen by itself. Sometimes, or in most cases, you need to make sure 
it's organized in a way where you can promote community and promote engagement with individuals and teams and organizations. And I know you use, I think Discord is a communication tool that VitaDAO uses. Can you talk to me about like how your community is connected and what tools we use? Yeah, the tools are mainly as this course, which is a forum, for example, Ethereum users for development discussions. Those are the main ones. Of course, there are video calls that are recorded. So there's some stuff also on YouTube. But my sense is that ultimately the most powerful one for community and really interesting one for me is seeing these research projects getting discussed and also challenged to a degree by the community and by really smart researchers in the community in this forum which you can access on gov.vitadao.com for governance form. And then there's Snapshot, which is basically used for people to vote on those research proposals. So if you have Vitadao tokens, one vote is one. So you can basically vote for which research we should fund or not fund. And in the Discord, every DAO and every crypto project has a Discord. It has its benefits and downsides. Like ultimately, it there's a lot of stuff going on. So it's also interesting, biohacking discussions, papers shared, but ultimately, I think a lot of values also even sometimes in physical communities. So having a meetup or, or different opportunities to discuss and chat with the community. But that's right now where a lot of the community activity happens. But I think it will, it's also still a learning. And I think one thing I care about is ultimately also having a clear goal of what do we want to really offer the community as an experience. And I think there are different parts to it but i think one of the most interesting ones is for the enthusiast and the crypto person for example that wants to fund research or learn more about research to actually engage with the research and understand the research discuss the research watch a journal club and with even folks like vitalik that are really excited also by what we do they was really eager to get our best resources on learning about longevity research and he's really deep in it he read books he went to conferences but ultimately which made me realize there's a lot of communication value and basically the research also of course it's different people in the community sharing their knowledge of specific uh, research areas and projects and i think there's huge value in that also through stuff like video conversations and podcasts with the researchers we funded on their research so there's a lot of stuff on our youtube channel which you can find under VitaDAO of different conversations and explanations, journal clubs, etc. So I think that's one of the most interesting elements to it. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a lot of comments and Twitter comments and stuff going on too. So there's definitely plenty of resources and the community is growing, everybody. So I feel like if you're interested at all, you should definitely check out DSI, Molecule, Vita Dow. Check out Vincent's profile as well. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. Do you remember when COVID-19 first hit the news and most people basically disregarded the viral threat for at least three months heading into the peak pandemic panic in the spring of 2020? Well, we would all like to think that we've learned from some of the mismanagement during the COVID-19 pandemic and can use those learnings for any future virus outbreaks. But based on what I'm seeing from reports about a recent monkeypox outbreak, I'm starting to think that we haven't fully appreciated the power of highly transmissible biological viruses. More than 12,000 monkeypox cases and three deaths have been reported in 68 countries since early May and will continue to rise. According to a recent Science Magazine editorial, epidemiologic investigations indicate that the predominant mode of transmission is through skin-to-skin and sexual contact, not contact with contaminated clothing or bed linens. Although respiratory droplet transmission might occur, there is no evidence of airborne transmission as there is with COVID-19. Symptoms usually start within three weeks of exposure to the monkeypox virus, with symptoms lasting two to four weeks. Additionally, people under 40 years old who have not benefited from the immunization campaign that eradicated smallpox by 1980 are now susceptible to monkeypox, which is in the same virus family as smallpox. And this lack of population immunity has contributed to the current outbreak. The smallpox eradication program was a 12-year effort that involved 73 countries working with as many as 150 national staff. Because of its animal reservoir, monkeypox can't be eradicated. Unless the world develops and executes an international plan to contain the current outbreak, 
it will be yet another emerging infectious disease that we will regret not containing. Of course, each country and of course, each country and different states have their own policies in terms of handling epidemics and pandemics, which create varying degrees of success in circumnavigating the viral outbreaks. I just hope we can do a better job communicating the risks and the different ways for people to avoid being infected by this new outbreak. Every day, I think about how DSI and the DSI community can enable a better public health world. Creating more transparent data flows throughout the research community and throughout the entire life cycle of science, I believe will help restore public trust in science. For more information about monkeypox, check out the link in the show notes. And now back to our episode with Vincent Weiser, Chief Product Officer at Molecule. I do have a few more questions really quick, and then we can wrap up for, for the day. Do you have a book that's influenced you and you'd like to recommend? It's a good question. I have a few. A recent one which I really liked was called How to Live by Derek Sievers, I think is his name pronounced. And it's fascinating because it actually doesn't tell you how to... Basically, each chapter goes into one concept, but then it's it's the opposite concept. So it's like be independent and then be dependent and basically it goes into all of these different ways how to live and basically explores it's a fascinating book that i'm still actually finishing reading but it was like one of the recently most influential fun books i read but i think there are a bunch of others what i can really recommend actually to founders and and people in startups is this book called great ceo within that is written by startup coach it is also people coaching people like i think the airbnb coinbase openai founders and ceos and which is basically almost like a checklist, very concise guide how to build a startup. And a bunch of others, also scientific books, like this classic book, AI, A Modern Approach on, on AI. I think it's like this gigantic textbook or um, this bio book, more like less, uh, yeah, bio of the cell. So there's a bunch that I really like. So it's hard to nail down to one. No worries. Thanks for sharing those. Appreciate it. I'll put them in the show notes for people to check out as well. If you had to have a microchip implanted in your body, where would you want it implanted? I think the obvious choice is the hand to basically use it potentially as a key or to share contact details and stuff like that. That's fair. And then of course, like at some point, hopefully also brain computer interfaces, but ultimately it doesn't fall on the microchip for me. That's fair. So you would be, if it was safe and it was tested, you would put a interface in your brain to communicate with computers, read and write. I would be curious to explore it. Yeah. I, I would want to understand really deeply who's building it, how does it work, sure. and also what's the upside. But I think the upside could be huge, so I would be excited to at some point try it out. How do you like to stay active and exercise? Yeah, so my main one is really this just habit of starting the day with a workout, which I can recommend, and then just walking a lot, walking to the office and to places or riding the bike. And then... One other interesting one that I realized that it's much more beneficial to health was at least from what I've read to do sprints rather than runs. High intensity, like like high intensity, short intervals. Yeah, exactly. That's in, in general my approach. It's not two hours like once a week, but it's high intensity every day, and then sometimes high intensity sprints. The awesome. Basic, to like have basically the maximum impact in the minimum time. I do have one more question. I didn't provide in advance, but something I like to ask some of my guests. It's really about reflecting on how the healthcare system has impacted you potentially. But the question is, and it's two questions, you can answer one of them. The first one yep. is, have you had a medical injury or disease or situation where you had to have go to a hospital or something and the experience maybe taught you something? Or the other question is, have you experimented with psychedelic drugs or some sort of psychoactive molecules or chemicals and how has that impacted or changed your life maybe so for me i have just like a small issue with my i don't know the english term but i think kneecap basically uh, switching out teens but what my realization was in general that hospitals could be optimized much more for being conducive to health like like this is basic stuff like of course like even like having like nature images on the walls like has an impact or like stuff like music and 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 the food and smell and everything. But what really was interesting to me is the main hospital experience for me was also just like visiting my grandparents who had whatever dementia or like some 
diseases in hospitals. And what I realized, this for me was kind of a personal, also I think subconscious reason to go into longevity and healthcare is to just see the suffering grandparents' generation is starting to go through from dementia, Alzheimer's and all of these diseases and seeing like this decline in life quality and being, okay, let's do something about it. I think it's fortunate that basically a lot of people in our world from 70, 80 year onwards live in such a state of suffering. And I think that's one of the main things why I think I also got into funding research and exploring different ways to tackle longevity and really to enable like preventative healthcare ultimately that avoids getting you like getting dementia or cancer or Alzheimer's and waiting for the point that you get cancer and then try to solve it, which is, I think, more sicker instead of healthcare. It's not really avoiding those diseases. I like that. I think you're right. We, we could make a hospital setting our clinics more conducive to... You're thinking like a designer. Exactly. It's kind of like the experience, I think, needs to be up. And ultimately, I want to have an experience where I never have to go to a hospital, never get a disease, but the healthcare system right now, clearly not optimizing for that for preventative healthcare. And I think having explored health insurance, like that was actually one of the ways we wanted to tackle is basically more value-based models for health insurance that also allow for more preventative healthcare and that are more incentivized. Like ultimately, there's this paper, I think, by BlackRock, it's a curing disease, a, a sustainable business model. And the answer is no, it's a more sustainable business model if you have diabetes and get something sold for the rest of your life without solving diabetes. So ultimately, there's like a clear incentive misalignment basically between healthcare and patients. Yeah, there definitely is. I do think, and I think we both believe blockchain and decentralization is going to help align those incentives. And hopefully we'll get to see a future like that. Vincent, thank you so much. I love this. Great insights. We talked a lot about the DSI world and I hope hope good luck to you and everything and look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. The last thing I wanted to add, which is one of my favorite quotes to end it was by Balaji basically saying that longevity is to healthcare what crypto is to traditional finance. So it changes the terms of the debate towards, of course, in this amazing tweet thread that I can recommend and uh, share also in the show notes to for people to go into more depth of the argument for why that is the case. Absolutely. I love that. And some question, one of the questions I asked other guests, and I'll ask you now too, why not, is Ray Kurzweil. He talks about the singularity that is supposed to happen in the year like 2045 or something like that. And it talks about longevity and our symbiote symbiotic relationship with AI. Any thoughts on that as a leaving final yeah, remark? I think it's it's bold to claim specific timelines. I think like it's likely to happen, but like the timeline I'm less certain about. And I think in general, a lot of the progress, some people underestimated, many people overestimated, but ultimately I think it will radically change our human experience. So I think definitely a lot of interesting ideas there. Awesome. Well, thanks, Vincent. Appreciate your time. Thanks for taking the time. What's great? Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.